0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 28th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and AEI fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So it has happened. Uh, it may prove to be the single worst financial transaction in the history of the planet. Elon Musk's 40 to $50 billion individual purchase of Twitter, um, something that is probably worth $7 billion, uh, has now gone through. And uh, he started, as you might expect with Elon Musk, with a bang, uh, taking over at 7, and by 7.01, uh, three or four leading Twitter executives, including, and most importantly, the head of Twitter's censorship bureau, um, were... Essentially, summarily escorted out of the building. There, are no tears should be shed for any of these people because, given the stock, given the amount of money that that Musk paid for Twitter, they apparently can all buy islands in Peter Thiel's um, island paradise, uh, far beyond the reach of everything. Every any and everybody who owns stock in Twitter just became very rich. So if you hear any whining, complaining about the mistreatment that Elon Musk is, you know, is is, is handing out to Twitter people, just be aware that if any of them own stock, they just got 50 times the value of the stock or something like that in terms of the price that he paid. So, um, I don't think that there is much to bemoan in this, uh, I think it's very likely that it was the worst deal in history and that he will, uh, you know, uh, he obviously tried to get out of it. Now he's in it. He's going to throw himself into it. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk about how, uh, and there already is, about how exciting it is that he that he has now uh, 86, the person who created the uh, shadow banning, banning removal regime, at twitter um now of course the countdown is going to come to who is going to be reinstated uh and the reinstatement uh of course the ultimate reinstatement would be donald j trump there are other people who need to be reinstated or ought to be reinstated who have had their speech suppressed in this way jordan peterson is one there are a whole bunch of others that said Will there be Twitter in five years? Let's game this out. I'm saying that Twitter may not exist in five years because there are all kinds of weird signs that the social media universe that we are in and that has sort of dominated us for the last decade um, is coming apart at the seams. In particular, the decision by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg to pivot toward the metaverse, which apparently has had a catastrophic effect on Facebook's stock price and indeed its own sense of mission that it has wildly um, overestimated the ability of current computers and current customers that to want to live in this alternate reality. As my friend Jonathan last says, the internet is the metaverse. The internet that exists now is the metaverse. We don't need to then pers- turn it into you know, a sort of 3D, all-body, all-world version. We can already be whoever we want to be on the internet. You don't have to sort of take this leap. And that he may have taken this leap for all kinds of reasons, including the fear that somehow he would not do it fast enough and he would turn into Atari or, you know, Commodore 64, be the kind of the, the innovator who got caught flat-footed as things were changing. But he may have over overestimated and overjumped. And similarly, Musk paid a lot of money for Twitter at the moment, at the time at which it is declining in value and use and, uh, and in utility. So will there be a Twitter in five years?
1: How, but I'm not sure how you, we get from uh, the the Facebook metaverse uh, um, overestimation to, will there be Twitter in five years? I mean, I, I think there's, there will continue to be this mass compulsion to, to, swarm to social media to something. If it's not exactly Twitter, which nothing will be exactly what it is in five years, but uh, something like Twitter, um, I I, the very fact that people are responding to Musk's taking over Twitter as if they are buying the actual universe in which in which they live in um, says to me that that yeah there will be twitter or there will be something like twitter this is this is where people have a certain class of people a certain subset of of politically minded people have gotten used to spending their days um i, I, I how does that change
2: yeah point. i i would uh i thought it was one of the most revealing things about uh, elon musk's uh, purchase of twitter yesterday and he you know he went in there and he met with people it was the fact that everybody was bringing up the speeches violence argument again which now i i think that the continuing to argue that speeches violence particularly in a week where you know we we had this story about everybody regretting that uh, james bennett's firing for for having published an opinion piece by by a, a senator so that was interesting because i think it actually the reaction i saw this time around was a lot of people kind of rolling their eyes at that talk as for the metaverse i think twitter will be around in 5 years although i will note that most people particularly young people are getting their news from tiktok now which is even more horrifying than twitter in a different way but um most most horrifyingly because it's you know an arm of the chinese state but to the metaverse point i i'm not so sure that We should jump to judging that this was a huge error on the part of Zuckerberg. First of all, most of Facebook's users aren't in the United States. They're in other countries. Most, you know, this is a global company. And the metaverse is something I think he sees as being a decades long project. And the key for him. Is having more and more platforms. If Facebook is on the decline, creating other platforms where he can track people across the internet. That's how Facebook makes its money. It early on bought a company that that had the ability that gave them the technical ability to follow you wherever you go on the internet. And if you think about the rise of gaming, for example, which is a multi-billion-dollar industry now, if you think of uh, the rise of some of the new forms of entertainment that people want to engage in, I think there's certainly a possibility that down the line the metaverse will be quite financially successful for them them. But what they are looking at is a way to dominate the market for tracking people when they are online in any way, shape or form, whether it's on a social media platform or whether they're gaming or whether they're in a in a sort of virtual mall buying stuff. That's what they want to own. They want to own that and be the biggest player in that business. And that's why they announced when they did, which I agree. I was surprised when they rebranded and everything. But I think that's their plan. and, And I could see them pulling off at least part of it.
3: I am shocked to the degree that to which people who spend a lot of time on the site, including myself, care about any of this. They act like they're getting a cut of the action. The right here is acting as though they have this is the storming of the Bastille. They have been liberated. The left seems to think that the the coming hellscape that this this change will you know produce is going to dramatically alter American politics for the worse. This is such a tiny sandbox that these people play in. The vast majority of this audience doesn't experience Twitter, doesn't care what happens to Twitter. It's relevant only insofar as very influential people spend a lot of time on that website. Well, right. And but nothing could be better for them than to spend less time on this website. We should all be hoping this product destroys itself. <laughs> it would liberate them, it would make our politics better. And whatever succeeds it. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's better. Who knows? But we can only deal in the now. And the now is relatively suboptimal.
1: But it, it, It's a tiny sandbox, with an outsized effect.
3: Very outsized I mean, influence. And I don't dismiss yeah. that influence only because the amount of the people who are on it are very influential. But it's just very influential to- people talking to themselves and talking themselves into a froth over things that generally don't matter. One
0: of those things being who owns Twitter? OK, well. It, it matters who owns it matters who own who owned media companies and uh, what is interesting is the degree of buy-in the more intensely involved you are in Twitter, the more you have buy-in in Twitter and this makes sense from a, f- in a fundamental perspective because you are Twitter. Twitter is content that is created by 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 the people who go on Twitter. There is no other content on Twitter. I mean it's funny because Facebook, actually now has a lot of content that isn't created by users of Facebook. There are media companies, there are PR companies, there are things like that. Much of t- Twitter is a kind is like um, free Etsy, like everything on Twitter is handcrafted by the people who are on Twitter. And so it makes sense that they have buy in a lot of them have a lot of cre- have invested a lot of time and some version of human creativity to create this. Uh, world in which they are they are constant participants and so uh that is twitter's secret sauce you know there's all this talk about oh only 27 percent of people use twitter and then only five percent use it a lot and all that well you know five percent is a lot like you know but trust me if you're in the if you're in the publication business and you can get five percent of any market as in a publication you're in pretty great shape if you're talking about something nationally and so the thing is that they've is that is that and maybe Musk can confi- no one's actually been able to figure out how to properly and seamlessly integrate the things that make money on Twitter from the things that don't. I mean, Musk but- has already floated the idea, which I think, if I were you know, I'm not a uh, whatever, but you know, it's like well, look, if you're Kim Kardashian and you make a hundred million dollars off of Twitter through endorsements, uh maybe Twitter should get a cut of, you know, Twitter's providing you with a free platform in which you can sell your wares. Maybe Twitter should get 1% of what people make when they put sponsored ads on the platform or something like that. If you do that, Twitter suddenly goes from being a very low-earning business into a mid or even high-earning business. And and that's not our concern. Like, what do we care, whether Twitter makes money or not?
2: But, well, I, yeah. if I can – the one thing I do care about with this, particularly with Elon Musk, and even though it's true that, you know, both both sides are behaving kind of outlandishly in terms of what this signifies – but it has brought to the forefront, once again, the the challenge of censorship on platforms, and particularly ideologically motivated censorship. And that's something that we need to be talking about across many platforms, not just Twitter, and not just, and this includes traditional platforms like, say, publishing houses, which you know, yesterday a whole bunch of Penguin Random House employees signed a letter saying they, that a Book by a so sort of sitting Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett shouldn't be published. That they were opposed to the publication of this book. Not for the book hasn't it been violates written.
0: international human rights yeah. according to this letter because it's she voted because she voted to overturn raid is unconstitutional. Yeah. Right, so that is but a violation. Is... She should be taken according to this letter somehow up to the international court in The Hague for her vote. This is a letter issued by employees of a publishing house. But remember, publishing houses have done
2: versions of this before where they won't use certain distribute like certain distributors kind of boycott conservative titles. There's been many instances of books pulled by by, uh, you know, places like Target and, and Amazon listing, you know, books about transgender people who oppose transgender ideology. So this is actually we have we have a censorship problem going on right now. A lot of, you know, A lot of what Noah has been writing about in his book has been about that kind of censorship. And that is still with us. So I think Elon Musk really annoying the people who want to come down hard and and boot people off platforms and censor and prevent them from publishing their books. That's all for the good, no matter how wild. I mean, he's totally unpredictable in many ways. So we'll see what he ends up doing. But I like that aspect of it. like Bringing that to the forefront, again, is very important. People who publish
0: books shouldn't be in the business of banning authors. (laughs) It's just not a good idea. Uh, it, it is astonishing. Uh, people who publish books are in the business of selecting which which books they want to publish. Of course. Right. So in that sense, they're not banning anything, but they are curating what it is that they put out with their investment in paper and, you know, whatever onto the free market to see what will what will sell. What's fascinating is this effort at prior restraint on the part of people in the publishing business to say, uh, "We believe that this shouldn't be read, um, and uh, you, you, you have no business publishing this book that shouldn't be read." I mean, my my favorite example over the last four or five years was the decision—I uh, can't remember who made it—to uh, jettison Woody Allen's memoir. Remember, Woody Allen has not actually been indicted for, uh, has not been proved to have uh, been or done anything uh, criminal. Uh, he is a, you know, he is an entertainer who has a, a really, you know, quite repugnant family history, and he's got uh uh, you know, a daughter and a son and an ex-wife who have accused him of a heinous crime for which there is no evidence, and his book was removed from a publishing house in the middle of the moral panic over over Me Too simply on the say so of somebody who was two years old when okay, so- <laughs> supposed. When so the, the supposed menti- act of, of infamy occurred. And that stuff can happen in a heartbeat on a social media platform.
3: Yeah. And the mentality that Christine identified and that you're talking about is what Elon Musk wants to address. He, he doesn't like that cloistered, intellectually closeted, uh censorious impulse uh, on the part of the people who run these platforms. And so he wants to change it and expose you to different views, what have you. Sure. But... Sort of a bank shot because the market opportunity here is for cloistered, censorious, curated environments. That's what these people want. That's what they want to pay for. That's what the market
0: will provide them because
3: but that's they're what not they're, paying, they're looking for. But so they're
0: not paying for that.
3: No, they're but not pay for anything. Look at the marketplace on social media, John. Social media has is exploded with opportunities for you to find a very narrow, self-selected community for to, free. To have your to have your ideas repeated to you for free. For free. Places like Gab and, and Truth Social and Parlor. Yeah, they're all
0: failures.
3: Exactly. Exactly. But they're failures because they want the smallest possible audience they can get. They don't want That's,
0: to be people don't want to be exposed. Elon to Musk they don't want. Elon Musk just paid 50 billion dollars or whatever it was he paid for Twitter. He is now personally hooked for more money for an individual purchase that I believe anyone has ever made in the history of this planet even accounting for inflation which means he makes this work for him personally in terms of finances, or even he, the richest man in the world, might be ruined. He wants what he said
3: made. he wants to do is, is for the good of human civilization is to have this very open forum, and that's I, not what the market
0: wants. That's not a market. Exactly. Not a market. Exactly. My no, point, John. No, 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 exactly no. Noah. Noah. He has to turn it into a market. And you're saying he should, he needs, he's going to have to turn it into a market that caters to the um, to the siloing, right? And sell into the siloing. I think he but thinks, like, and I think the siloing is bad. I think he, he thinks, thinks it's that bad, he can, and he's but he, right. Like, that's what the
3: customer base wants.
0: No, because they're not customers yet. Well, fair they're enough. Not, they're products. They're not customers. No, they are content providers. Products, but they're not the market. We don't know what the market for Twitter is because it has been inefficiently and badly managed. Uh, to Can make I, far, la- yeah, go ahead. Abe, I, I
1: I have some thoughts on on Musk and this question of free speech here, and and I agree with everything Christina said, and and um, I have a great deal of respect for free speech absolutists. Um, I I sorry to say I think Musk is a, of a slightly different type. I think he's he likes the thrill of the troll a little too much um, a little a little bit more than the principle actually of free speech now if that means you get free speech in with the deal okay yeah, I, I understand how yeah it, 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 in the end that that is better than than um, having this ludicrous censor cens, uh, censorship regime um, but I don't expect the 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 tone of Musk's Twitter to be particularly um, refreshing, enlightening, uh, positive. Right. I think I think it's going to be very dark, yeah. very dark, in very different ways. Um, and 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 this is this is not to say I'm not on the side of P. Look, yes, it, on balance, again, it is for the good. Um, uh, not to have morons deciding how to program uh, uh, algorithms to to get rid of people but we'll see we'll, we'll see what this ends up looking like it's going okay, to be it's look, going to be a of an idiosyncratic version of, of free speech look there is a double-edged sword in the
0: elimination of curation or moderation or whatever you want to call it uh, which obviously became excessively political um if my uh, Twitter has I don't know seven hundred and fifty employees or something like that, I think maybe it's I, I can't remember what the number is. And a lot of them are going to be gone in the next two weeks. Uh, again, particularly if they have stock, they will probably be gone. And um, the question is aside from you know, banning Jordan Peterson and people like that in this outrageous and repulsive uh, politically correct, totalitarian fashion, there's probably a lot of other stuff going on that we don't see that is you know technically uh, time consuming. Um, ensuring that uh, porn doesn't show up in your feed, ensuring that child porn is eliminated, ensuring that you know those are mostly what I'm thinking about about sort of like the things that will make the experience that will take you if you're not careful and if you're not, you know it's like what happened to various email second secondary email, Servers like the one that I was on for years, Springmail. At some point, because it started running out of money, Springmail stopped, you know, like working really hard to filter to have these email filters for spam. And suddenly I'm getting a hundred spam emails a day, and a lot of them are porn. And then I didn't know what to do because I didn't, and then, uh, um, other email programs started refusing emails from my email address because Springmail had become a porn server. And so you then assumed that anything coming from Springmail was porn. And so I then had to jump to Gmail at a time when it was actually hard to get on Gmail. People don't really remember this, but you needed a special invitation. It was in beta for like 10 years. I don't even remember what. But I had to move because people couldn't even get my emails. Twitter, if, if Musk needs to cut personnel down in order to lower his weekly nut and all of that, he's going to have to thread a very, very, very like thin needle because he's going to need people to continue to make it so that when you go on Twitter, you don't have, you know, you don't see disgusting things Um, while not, while enforcing or not enforcing speech codes. And they are very different things, but they're probably done by the same set of people or the same category of people in the workplace. And, and you know, it's only going to take a week for Twitter to destroy itself if it starts getting, you know, if they fire the wrong five people and something happens and then our, our timelines get flooded with um things that if someone if you're at the office and someone looks over your shoulder and sees that you're on Twitter like that you could get hauled in to the HR department for you know having for having not safe for work material on your on your screen so it's it's a it's an interesting challenge this stuff is not so simple and I'm I'm still going with Musk who is a very brilliant very interesting very erratic person has just done something so spectacularly stupid that I will say that his genius might afford, might make it possible for him to find a third path, a breakthrough conception that will save this $50 billion, $50 billion expenditure that he made personally and by himself. But, you know, that's a hard, that's a hard road to hoe. As for Facebook and, and the metaverse and Christine's defense of Zuckerberg's long range planning. Not defense, just description. I'm horrified by the metaverse. The metaverse could be the flying car, though. In other words, you know, believe me, when I was a kid, people thought there were going to be flying cars by now. And you know that because you saw Blade Runner and they had flying cars, and that was 2019. And people thought there would be flying cars. Kind of means, kind of turns out you don't need a flying car. Once you actually think about the logic of the flying car, it's not that great. Then everybody's flying in the air. How does that make it better than having roads? It actually doesn't make it better than having roads because it's only in scarcity that the that the air travel, you know, if, if there were 5,000 planes per square foot, planes couldn't fly 600 miles an hour so easily, whatever. And so there are no flying cars. And similarly, the conceit of the metaverse may be
1: serving people with something that they actually don't want or need. Uh, to me, the metaverse is is less imaginative, less imaginative than all this, and and totally retro. I, I I'm baffled because I thought virtual reality had its hype moment twenty years ago. I don't know when that was, uh, when there was all these movies about people putting on headsets and 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 helmets and solving crimes in this you know sort of digital landscape. Um, uh, uh, platforms like Second Life have been around forever, where people were doing, as far as I could tell, exactly what they're doing on the metaverse. Um, it was it, it wasn't this universally embraced thing. So I don't really understand w- the second go round. Um, what, what what makes what's supposed to make this experience magical where the first one wasn't?
2: Gaming and esports, though, is what has changed between that time and now the absolute explosion and and massive money making uh, potential of moving that to a platform dominating dominating esports alone would, would, you know, prove the metaverse. A good investment but okay. i mean the so, verdict's out i i'm with it i mean I, I agree with dave this especially because they've only recently announced that your avatar on, on uh in the metaverse finally has legs because before it was just this weird torso that would walk. it's very strange very second life ish. i think you're right about that but I, again what they're envisioning is is commerce at a scale that never occurred on those earlier platforms
0: it's it's po- anything is possible but um the and you can't divorce Zuckerberg's decision to pivot in this direction from the political assaults on Facebook over the last three or four years, including our own. Like we, Christine wrote a piece for, for commentary on how Facebook needed to be broken up.
2: Yeah, and they, um, they definitely needed a rebrand.
0: <laughs> yeah, they needed a rebrand. They changed their name. You know, liberals were coming after them. Conservatives are coming out. Everybody was coming after them. And so he's like, no, no, we're not even doing that anymore. Now we're going to be about, you know... Uh, being you know having a having legs in a virtual uh, you know where you can walk around and you know bet I mean it's like that's ableist John by the way yeah, li- I've learned li- this know, week like, that yeah, having leave, legs leave, is leave us alone we're like we're now just a toy we're turning human beings into toys for their own play and so we're not we're not conveying information anymore we're something else um you know, it was a. It was a. Des- it had two faces. One of which is, as I say, he didn't want Facebook to go the way of leading tech companies in the past who got leapfrogged and destroyed by by better versions of themselves. But you know, when you do that again, you make you're making a giant bet on something that may or may not. You know, and other companies are making yeah.
2: the same giant bets on things like augmented reality versus virtual, re- you know, sort of yeah. variations. But but the overarching picture, though, is that a lot of money and a lot of uh, intelligence and design and and um, effort is being sunk into the idea that we should spend more time not living in the real world and much more time in the virtual one. And that's also problematic if you think about the health of a democracy yeah. on the sort of larger scale. So
0: and, uh, and that's this,
1: by the way, I think that's the impulse. That's not going anywhere though. That's so that's absolutely well,
0: that's, right. That's yes. Yeah. So, um, but listen, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, that this is a very pessimistic way of looking at the world. And I want to talk to you about the most cheerful pessimistic conversation that I've heard, uh, in many a moon it's on Dan Senor's call me back podcast. It's just, was just out yesterday. Um, and it is with call me back fan favorite guest, Mohammad al aryan um the uh former uh, head of a lot former he's done everything he ran pimco uh you know he was chair of the Global Development Council he is the president of Queen's College at Oxford. He's one of the most entrancing speakers on macroeconomic trends you can possibly imagine and um and he and Dan go through what he refers to in this podcast as the uh, economic trilemma uh and the trilemma is um uh interest rates uh central banks and um fiscal and monetary stimulus like the trilemma is he says if you had a choice and you could be paul volcker facing the problems that paul volcker faced with the stagflation of the late 1970s, or you could be Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve now, things were much worse in the late 70s. He says it would be better to be Volcker than it is to be Powell, because the the world economy is so much more complicated than it was in the 1970s. And the choices and uh, complications and confusions uh, and unintended con- consequences of moves that you might make as a central banker. um the the chess game is so much more complicated uh, that um Volker, in retrospect w- would you'd say had a much easier hand to play once once he decided determined to play it and did did the right thing and it worked. and Powell, they're going to be they are going to be, um, what sort of uh, victims, no matter where you turn, and victims that you didn't want to victimize simply because everything is so interdependent. Anyway, it's a very cheerful, sprightly, enlivening, depressing conversation, but the enlivening and spiriting part is much more present. That's the call me back podcast with Dan Sinor. His guest is Muhammad Al Ari, and go to Apple google play Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts subscribe listen learn it's really great um i want to read to you guys uh, i sent this to uh to my colleagues here um but i want to read to you guys from a fascinating piece in the new uh news website aggregator semaphore run by ben smith um the uh Uh, you know, former media reporter, head of BuzzFeed, media reporter for the New York Times and everything. Um, So uh, it's by Benji Sarlin, uh, who's a nice guy at, uh, at, was at the NBC News for a long time and is now doing this, he and Dave Weigel are doing this uh, political daily newsletter for Semaphore. And this is about crime. And he's trying to get his hands around the political issue of crime. More Americans say crime is up in their area than at any point over the last five decades, according to new polling from Gallup. The survey conducted in October found 56% of respondents reported crime has increased over the last year in their neighborhood, up from 51% in 2021 and just 38% in 2020. 78% said there's been more crime in the country last year, similar overall similar to last year. Public safety is playing a starring role in the midterms as Republicans highlight crime in campaigns and promising a tougher approach. Okay, here's where you get into the interesting weeds. Not coincidentally, Gallup found the increase in perceived crime was driven by a major shift among Republicans. 73% said local crime was up last year, up from just 38% two years ago. Not coincidentally, Gallup found the increase in perceived crime was driven uh, hold on. Uh, uh, verse, anyway, low, low crime is up versus 51% of independents and 42% of Democrats, whose views have barely moved over the past two years. So what Benji Sarlin is saying is that is that crime has become a partisan issue because more Republicans than Democrats say that crime is worse where, where they are, and they're somehow therefore implicitly being propagandized uh, into believing this. By Fox News, he cites this piece by Philip Bump in the Washington Post two days ago about how why was it that Fox pivoted to crime in September? You know, they were working in tandem with the RNC in the, you know, in order to stimulate this issue among voters. Um, crime is up. It's not perception. Crime is up. And by the way, what people think, everybody thinks that crime is up in the country. Everybody. Thinks that crime is up in the country. 74% of Democrats think crime is up in the country versus 95% of the Republicans. It's not that anybody disagrees with the contention that crime is up. Some people are saying crime is not particularly up in their area. And maybe they're saying that because they are having the second order effect in polling of not wanting to say that crime is up because they're Democrats and it makes Biden look bad. Who knows? But perception and reality here, you I, I, you know he tries to make the case that, look, crime was higher three decades ago. Yeah, big duh. The question is the delta, the change. And has crime gone up in the last three years? Yes. I mean, almost exponentially. And we don't even know how much crime is up nationally this year because the crime statistics that were issued three weeks ago were issued without 40% of the country supplying data To the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 40%, including, by the way, most cities, which is where crime has leapt most severely. You know what isn't up, particularly after 2020? Murders. Murders are relatively stable. People aren't afraid of crime because they think they're going to be a murder victim on law and order. They're but you should also of know
2: mugging. that yeah, homicide did take a big leap nationally 2020. in 2020, and we're right. not yet back to the pre-20, anywhere near the pre-2020 right. levels.
0: So, Right. But when people say they're afraid of crime, I don't think they're saying they're afraid of being killed. I think, and I, I speak as somebody who grew up during a period of intensely, you're afraid of being mugged. You're afraid of somebody coming up and punching you in the side of the head. Like in New York City you're not afraid of being shot to death. In fact, you're afraid of being pushed on a subway pl- onto, the, onto the subway tracks. Well, that'll I, kill you. Yeah. What? That, that, that could that kill, kill you. you, but it's, it's not killed. Two people ahead. recently. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, can I, can I um, add that I think ahead.
2: the other thing that he's avoiding, which I think is clear to any normal person, is that it's not a matter of parsing the statistics and scolding people who say, I feel unsafe in my neighborhood, because crime is intensely local. It's experienced locally by people. It's also, as as voyeurs, as human beings, we're all voyeurs, right? It's also seen there's something about watching what's happening to other people and seeing, you know, again, we're back to social media, but the, social media is packed with these videos of shoplifting and sort of random assaults and, and other other parts of the country. But the overall sense is disorder. And we heard from Democrats for the first part of Biden's presidency that this is just the expected after effects of the COVID lockdown and the pandemic and people are all kind of losing their minds and we'll get back to normal. Look, you've elected Joe Biden, we're gonna get back to normal. It's gotten worse. And in fact, a lot of these problems were growing long before the pandemic because of specific policy choices made by Democratic leaning elected officials or Democrats for things about like the elimination of cash bail, uh, sentencing, changes in sentencing so that people are let out earlier. And then COVID exacerbated and and intensified that effect. But those things were happening already. And so I think that- People are no longer buying this message that we should just be patient. It's just the hangover effects of COVID. No, 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 it's not. It's a real problem. And people experience the general disorder, the, you know, the sort of the, the, there's like litter and there's tense cities everywhere. And, you know, people are like, what's happening? Why isn't, why aren't things working correctly? Why can't we solve these very basic problems in one of the richest countries on earth? That's the feeling, the general disorder and the mayhem and the kind of anxiety that that creates in people on a daily basis.
1: And, and the answer by, I mean, one foundational answer to, to why is because of this broad based denial of the problem, because of, of, of messages like this that say, no, it's not really happening. I know you live your life and you experience it, but nah, you're being manipulated just as you're being manipulated in terms of the economy. That's that's fine, too. None of the problems you say you have, you have. Stop! Stop being! Stop being uh, useful idiots uh, for for fascist for mega mega triple down trickle down fascists. All right, blew up uh, the
0: line. Um, Eric Adams, uh, the mayor of New York City, who is fast becoming one of the most clownish politicians in the history of this planet, yesterday said in a weird or Wednesday said in a weird echo of Kathy Hochul's bizarre claim that she didn't know why lee zeldin was so exercised about crime said people keep talking about the subways but you know three and a half million people ride the subways every day and they don't have criminal encounters mostly most people don't have criminal encounters mostly on a daily basis you only have to be a victim of crime once to be a victim of crime and if it's random crime, in particular, then you are, you are without defense. So that's when Adam says, don't be on your phone. Don't put headphones in so you can be aware of your surroundings so you can somehow avoid the psychopathic schizophrenic homeless guy who's going to push you on the tracks. Well, No, see, what's supposed to happen is that that guy isn't supposed to be able to push you onto the tracks. Yes, this is what people are increasingly having to do. No, they do not accept it as a reality that they should simply give into. They will over time. New Yorkers in particular got used to living with levels of crime, many of them. I mean, a million people left New York between 1970 and 1980, literally moved out of the city from 1970 to 1980. They were voting with their feet to get away from the madness. But the leading public official in New York City says, you make sure that you're safe because, you know, you can't expect me. I have to go to my Italian restaurant and have people come and kiss my ring and eat for free and be a corrupt third rate loser but you 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 take care of yourself now of course we are self-governing people and we should take care of ourselves and that's not not but this is where democrats uh who are tasked with the job of keeping people safe in the places where crime is the highest this is what they are defaulting to and it is suicidal i think politically suicidal in ways that we're only going to start beginning to see in uh, 11 days or whenever the election is
1: Here's the thing that they're, they're not grasping about, about crime. Um, when a crime happens, it doesn't matter how, how many people crime doesn't happen to, uh, in, in, in the sense that Adams is describing when, when a crime is committed, um, it doesn't happen, uh, in, in an environment of otherwise pristine environment. Um, it, it, it there are all these attendant atmospheric realities to it. Um, a lot of people witness it. Uh, if you yourself did, don't experience a crime, I myself have, have not been the victim of a crime in New York City. Um, you still come pretty close every now and then or a lot more often than you used to. Uh, there's still uh, an edge and a sense of menace um, when you're on the subway and when you're on the street. You don't have to get to the bullseye. Uh, to know that, that things are different and that, and that crime is up in the city. And, and that, that resonates so far beyond any number of individual victims of crimes. It is something that you can sense, you see, you witness crimes, you feel the erosion of the, of the, of the total atmosphere of the city. And that is absolutely gutting and devastating for you as a citizen of, of a city. Here's some and- terrible news that's
3: breaking just now on these lines. Uh, A statement from Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, quote, early this morning, an assailant broke into the Pelosi residence in San Francisco and violently assaulted Mr. Pelosi. The assailant is in custody and the motivation for the attack is under investigation. Mr. Pelosi was taken to hospital and is receiving excellent medical care. Um, One of the things that Benji said in the wake of this, he was arguing with Chris Hayes over the premise of this piece, which the premise is, fully within Chris Hayes' worldview. He says the following, you could also say the partisan blinders in this case are Democrats not registering the rise in crime since the pandemic, despite there quite objectively being a rise in crime in many of the places Democrats are concentrated. I know Benching; I know this is what he believes. It's not what his piece said, which is why I'm very confused as to what the intention of this piece was, how many fingers were in this this pot. Um, Because it sounds like there were a lot but he's got his finger on the pulse there. We had a Quinnipiac poll not too long ago, found that among the among Republicans in New York, crime is the biggest issue followed by inflation. Among independents in New York, crime followed by inflation. Among Democrats, the top issue is democracy because that's what they've been primed to say. That's what everybody in their orbits thinks they should be focused on. They're good little soldiers. Um, and it's to their detriment for sure. But there's a conspiracy abroad to ensure that Democrats at least tell people that that's what they believe, that's what they think. I don't think it's what they believe. I don't think it's what they think. I think it's what they think they should think, but they think they should believe. And yeah, it's electoral poison. Um, But it's not escaping anybody's notice that they're simply being good soldiers and telling pollsters what they're supposed to say.
0: Um, The the news about Paul Pelosi um, uh, will be... Um, a very major piece of information because there are two I think and only two possibilities here one is that it was a random break-in and therefore the Pelosi's are now going to be a kind of example of what is happening particularly where she lives San Francisco which has become a lawless a relatively lawless city and the other is that it's a political act of some sort, in which case we will, we, the things that we have been, that people have been warning about, about the decline in our civic culture, and the fact that uh, politicians are now at personal And justices. Ri- and, yeah, <laughs> are, are now at personal risk uh, in a way that only presidents have ever really been at risk. Um but
3: even if this from, was a
0: politically motivated attack, yes. that's crime.
3: No, no, politically I know. Motivated I know, attacks, I know, I know politically cri- right, politically motivated it, criminality right. is the entirety of this issue. It manifested right. in 2020 as politically motivated
0: criminality. Which right. was
2: excused by a large yes. amount
0: of our it was. Was, but I'm politically resonant issue. Obviously, it obviously it has a different, it has a different Uh, flavor and meaning met a meaning if it was essentially a kind of semi-assassination attempt that's a even though she wasn't there um, uh, but she lives in a mansion in San Francisco and uh,
2: San Francisco's crime is really out of control right now too I mean it's
0: yeah so uh, I mean that that this is sort of like a thing where we're just going to have to see how this plays out over the over the next uh, couple of days
2: um Well, do you remember who was it? Boxer? Who was it? There was a former senator. There was another senator attacked in in Oakland uh, like a year ago. Who was that? Yeah, I think was, that was Barbara yeah, Boxer. That was Barbara yeah. Boxer. I mean, and that was a random attack. She was just, yeah. you know, they, they were yeah. trying
0: to rob her. And then, of course, we had we had the for the shooting outside of Lee Zeldin's house. Who is the congressman from Long Island who is running for governor? I mean, the whole point about this is when. Uh, when you have a crime wave, um there is very little people talk about gated communities and stuff like that. There is actually very little insulation over time from a crime wave, which is which is a long, which is a little like inflation. Like once it ho- takes hold, it needs changes in laws and mores and things and a whole kind of thing in order for it to still so we're still in the kind of growth period and one of the things is that the randomness makes it so that no one is really safe uh you know you can get unless you unless you live like a brazilian millionaire and you literally don't go out without a security detail because you could get mugged anywhere and this is literally how wealthy brazilians live they 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 have staffs of five or six who surround their cars with so that they can't get carjacked and stuff like that. Like this is a real thing. I think Mexico City is the same, although Brazil is much more classically that case. And obviously very wealthy people can protect themselves in all kinds of ways. But Nancy Pelosi is such a wealthy person and so is her husband. And apparently that didn't work uh, in this in this instance. Um, I I just think it is interesting to see that this argument is at least being played with by Benji Sarlin, by Phil Bump. This it isn't what what's happening here with these Republicans making hay out of crime isn't really real. And I would really suggest to the journalists who aren't listening to me, but they should that um, they they should find more fruitful places to go, like what happens to politicians in a period of high crime when crime is not addressed? And I don't just mean in, you know, upcoming 11 days, like what are the political effects? And the political effects in this country were the semi- It wasn't the destruction of the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party was the prevailing and dominant force in American politics pretty much, even if they didn't have the presidency the whole time, pretty much from 1932 until 1980. And one of the two things, and that means when Nixon was president, that means when Eisenhower was president, the two things that took them down and changed the political dynamic going forward for the next for the following 50 years were weakness on foreign policy and weakness on crime and that is it because people don't understand how central an issue crime was in the United States and, and I guess the economy was third but the economy was actually a transitory I mean it was a terrible issue in the 70s but um but Republicans were as implicated in bad economic decision making as as Democrats were but crime was a Democratic was believed to be a democratic, Failing and the Democratic Party was punished. It was punished at the Senate. It was published at the public punished, and the parties realigned. Urban Democrats, a lot of urban Democrats became Republicans, not effectively nominally Republicans because they lived in places that had gone out of control and they elected Reagan and they elected 12 senators in 1980 and the entire political gravity of the United States shifted. So you're going to hear it's about Newt, and you're going to hear it's about you know they they started being racist and this and that. Nothing to do with that. And if you want to start from the from the uh, proposition that it's time to see what political effect crime is going to have. Go there. Don't go with "nah, it's not really happening," and you're and everyone's being seduced by by my, the My Pillow guy or whatever. You know, this is just not adult an adult way of dealing with a massive change in the political dynamic of the country. Uh, one last piece of uh, news: first serious poll to come out uh, after the uh, Fetterman-Oz race by a reputable pollster uh wick insights has uh oz suddenly uh in the lead um in the senate race uh 40 uh, by uh by almost two points 48 to 46 if you round up um and if the election were held today it says uh and you had to choose in other words this is with leaners Oz, 65%, Fetterman, or Oz, 64%, Fetterman, 36%. Wow. Um, 1,000 likely voters in Pennsylvania recruited uh, on the 26th and the 27th by texting links to online surveys to stratified random samples of registered voters. So uh, you can say that, you know, you can come up with all sorts of arguments about how this might not be real. But it's uh, it's real. Um, so uh, let's see let's see what, uh, you know, if, if we are resetting uh, the political expectations uh, of this election to the notion that that uh, Oz has it, then uh, the Democratic, uh, task of keeping the Senate out of Republican hands just got vastly more difficult. Um, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to see any, any thoughts. I, we need to see
3: more reputable polling <clears throat> Then you know, we've seen a lot of polls where nobody's, you know, there's a lot of tenths of percentage points in these, in these surveys. And I keep seeing a lot of, uh, data points that don't make a whole lot of sense. So I want to, I want to wait for a more reputable poll. There's no universe in which. Mehmet Oz gets sixty percent of the vote in Pennsylvania.
0: No, no, but that was. in other <laughs> I understand. Words, that I was, understand.
3: That's the impulse. Yeah, and yeah. maybe it's the shock of the event. Maybe it's very yeah. reputable. I no, know.
0: the poll itself says it's a it says it's a two point race with Oz in the lead, yeah. which which is within the which is within where things have been right because it's been a two point race with Fetterman in the lead, and so that's a that's a that's a coherent shift right as a result of a debate within the margin of error but more people you know but then a certain number of people who probably said they were voting for for fetterman said they would vote for oz or people came off the sidelines and are now saying they're voting for oz who were undecided we just don't know um anyway we uh, we wish uh, paul pelosi a, a, a speedy recovery obviously it's an awful thing that just happened and as it uh, and uh, and we will uh, we'll be back on Monday to to see what's the story there. Have a wonderful weekend for Abe, Noah, and Christine. I'm John Bod-Hortz. Keep the candle burning.